discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm your host Huang Shan, stepping in for He Yang. Good to have you along. China's shrinking population and dwindling fertility rate have sounded alarms for urgent measures. Since the total fertility rate has fallen below the replacement level, the Chinese authorities have made boosting the fertility rate a top priority. Major cities have ramped up subsidies and nursery care services to encourage families to have more children. As senior health officials said, bold measures should be taken to address low birth rates. Ahead of China's annual two sessions, policy advisers from across the country have recommended a raft of new measures, policy changes, and benefits as well. What are the proposals worth discussing, and how will people react to such recommendations? And what makes a company a great place to work at? Chinese netizens have listed investment in employee training and development as keys to helping employees achieve growth and feel valued. How can organizations help employees thrive? You can share with us your thoughts by rating and reviewing the show at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. You can also send us voice questions to EZFM Roundtable at foxmail.com to take part in the weekly heart-to-heart segment. For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First, on today's show. Ahead of China's annual two sessions, policy advisers from across the country have come up with new plans for tackling some of the most pressing issues facing the nation. Among them, three separate proposals that intend to bolster China's ever-falling birth rate have garnered media headlines and aroused discussions as to whether they will make any difference. What are the proposals that have caught the attention of internet users? Li Yi, please give us more details. Mm, during this year's two sessions, we've seen a lot of proposals and suggestions from both delegates and policy advisors, and a lot of them are about measures to really encourage people to have kids. And one proposal identifies excessive working hours or a demanding working culture as a main factor to the downward trend in both marriage and birth rates in China. So there's the suggestion that authorities should really get companies and organizations to stick to eight-hour workday through regulation and supervision. And meantime, there's another proposal trying to paying attention to the high education cost, which is also a main factor that a lot of young couples are considering whether or not to have a baby. So the proposal just uh, suggests that free education from kindergarten through high school should be provided to families who have a third child. And also there's a very interesting proposal that is about duration of primary education. I think that is given in a context that Chinese people are really delaying their marriage and uh, particularly the average age of first marriage of Chinese people stood at 28.67 in 2020. And just recently, I saw uh, some figures coming out from local governments and showing that the similar trend in 2022. So there's the proposal to really cut or reduce the duration of primary education to really cut from the current six years to five years. And also the length of secondary schooling should be, should also be reduced to five too. So there are different suggestions and proposals. And I've seen like a mixed reaction on social media platforms. Some people think they can help to promote the fertility rate or the birth rate in China. But also there are a lot more people calling on, you know, more efforts to really solve the deep rooted question or social issues. Uh, really concerning the young couples in China. Yeah, as is expected, public reactions are mixed. Well, some uh, may applaud these proposals and saying they're on point, while some others, on the other hand, are questioning their feasibility and the functionality. So Josh, what do you think after hearing these three proposals we selected? Do you think such proposals are appealing enough to drive up people's desire to give birth? Um. I think that it remains to be seen, right? But I think that it could possibly, but I'm really not so sure uh, about this. But I do think that there is a possibility. I I know that income 
and financial issues are, are also stated as some of the main reasons for the, the main issues, the main definitive issues for declining birth rates in my own country, in the United Kingdom, and also in the US. It, it often comes down to income um, and living standards um, and people's p pursuit of those living standards um, and uh, etc. Because uh, in, in the United Kingdom, for, for example, birth rates have been falling pretty steadily um, since the Great Depression and, and even in the last 10 years, uh, actually. And I, I do have some statistics to share with you about the UK and also the US, if, if I may, uh, quickly. First of all, we can start in Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. The population of children aged 0 to 14 has decreased by 9% over the past decade, 9%. And since the most recent peak in 2012, the number of live births in England and Wales has dropped by 15.9%. In Scotland, the number of live births registered in 2021 was the second lowest annual total since records began in 1855, right? Traditionally, the Office of National Statistics has accounted for all of these social changes and people having children in later life. And they've stated that a lot of the main reasons are women focusing on their education and careers, uh, medical advances such as lower child mortality, uh, and also access um, and knowledge about contraception is also uh, a very important factor here. But for most of these factors, uh, the definitive issue still comes down actually to income uh, is, is what is what I've come across as the most stated reason here. Also in the United States, American women are having fewer babies um, and they're also having them quite a lot later in life. Uh, I read some data collected by the National Center for Health Statistics, um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's uh, statistical arm, and they showed a sharp decline in fertility rates in recent years, with most women having an average of 1.3 babies and an increasing percentage giving birth at 35 or older. And uh, according to the report from 2015 to 2019, 56.7% of women aged um, 18 to 49 have had at least one child. Um, but as of 2019, the most recent year included, birth rates have generally continued to increase for women aged 35 to 39. Um, birth rates um, also increased for women in their 40s uh, from 1985 to 2019. Yeah, these figures are staggering, and we need to acknowledge the fact that low fertility is a universal issue. Before we dive into the possible solutions to this alarming trend, Josh, you have shared with us with regard to what does the global decline of the fertility rate look like. Now the question is back to you, Li Yi. How serious is the declining population growth in China? Mm, I think the uh, demographic change in China has recently aroused a lot of discussion in the country and also in the world, particularly with the latest data released by the National Bureau of Statistics earlier in January, showing that the population in the Chinese mainland declined by 850,000 in 2022. It's actually the first time that, that the population saw decline in 61 years. And there are various reasons leading to this demographic decline, and a major one would be the long-term a low fertility rate in the country. And if we look at the specific number, uh, by the way, by referring fertility rate, we are saying the average number of children per woman. And that number was 1.3 in China in 2020. And uh, also, as you said, Huang Shen, and also as the um, data provided by Josh shows that low fertility rate has been a commonplace uh, on a global basis. Uh, I think South Korea is the country with the lowest fertility rate. And uh, just earlier in February, I think the country has breaks its own record with its fertility rate failing to 0 0.78 in 2022. And, and of course, there are like various reasons and we can discuss about all the reasons that people are less willing to have baby later. Uh, but I think on the national level, uh, global governments are increasingly worried about this trend because obviously for them, uh, they worry that there will be too few people of working age of to really support the economy. And especially considering there are an aging population on the world 
uh, basis. So we can see that countries have really come up with different efforts to boost the declining population, and so does China. The push for babies comes after China's population started shrinking for the first time in six decades.、Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, we do need some effective measures and plans and policies to boost the willingness. Of giving birth, maybe I've seen several major cities, including Hangzhou or Shenzhen, they are rolling out incentives to boost birth rates. Apparently, China is not the only country trying to boost dwindling birth rates with cash or some preferential policies, cash incentives.、Uh, Singapore, South Korea, and Japan—you name it—they have similar programs. Like for example, if we are looking at the situation in Hangzhou, which is the capital city of Zhejiang Province,、uh, the city recently announced that the parents who have a third child will receive a lump sum payment of twenty thousand yuan, or around twenty nine hundred U.S. dollars, and those who have a second child will get five thousand yuan. But I don't know how many people would like to have a third child in a very competitive city like Hangzhou. And、uh, well, if we look at the amount of the subsidies, my question here is that fertility subsidies could be an incentive for low-income groups to have more children. But how about middle and high-income families? I don't really think they'll be tempted by this offer. And these cash subsidies will have a very limited effect because the subsidy amount eligible families get. It's just like a drop in a bucket to solve the problem. We have to recognize the obstacles faced by people who are able to, but not willing to give birth. What are their concerns, Josh? What are their concerns, in your opinion? Well, I think a lot of it does come down to income. It does come down to money. We can talk until the sun goes down about all of the other issues, but it seems to me that most of it does come down. To financial security, which it might not be the most glamorous thing, but that's the way the world works. That's the way power works, and that's the way security、um, works. And I think that when it comes to things like stability and financial security, these are two really important things when it comes to the decision to have a child. For for most people, I think. So、uh, I think that a lot of countries, a lot of companies, policies are different. For example. Uh, in the United Kingdom, for things like maternity leave, but I think something like maternity leave, more generous maternity leave, for instance, is definitely one thing that could encourage fertility rates to rise, right? And that comes down to cash, hard cash, really, doesn't it? I mean, that's what maternity leave really is. It's it's about cash payments to new parents and allowing them to. Spend time with their newborn baby a, a more, longer amount of time during those really important formative years, but also not have to worry as much about being financially unstable.、Um, also, things like subsidizing childcare or helping older people retire more easily, so that they can maybe help take care of their grandchildren. All of these things,、uh, financial support,、uh, is the main reason that. Fertility rates can rise, and maybe why they are declining.、Um, but where does this financial support come from? Who's responsible for giving this financial support in a competitive market economy? That's quite a difficult question to answer. Well, I want to propose like a counter argument here. You、mm. know, especially I want to echo what the issue you mentioned earlier, Huang Shan, about governments trying to throw money at the problem. And I think. Um, somehow, of course, the rising cost of living has been a major concern for young people out there to be less willing to have kids. However, I think throwing money isn't really the most important or the most effective、uh, measure to solve the problem because obviously we've mentioned South Korea, and、mm-hmm. I think just the last September, the president of the country has admitted that more than two hundred. A、billion U.S. dollars has really been spent trying to boost the population over the past 16 years. However, we see the result in the country. The fertility rate keeps 
declining. And uh, I think, generally speaking, I think that's uh, a trend we've observed on a global basis. And uh, also, there are studies showing that there could be like an inverse correlation between income and also the birth rate, because usually the higher the degree of education and also GDP per capita, the fewer children are born in the society. That's a trend uh, being observed in, on a global basis. So I highly doubt, you know, would like providing as much uh, subsidies or like trying to financially uh, help those young couples would like fundamentally solve the problem. You know, personally, I think a major reason that young couples are less willing to have kids is we've actually seen a growing social mobility in the modern society. Because I think in the modern society, life is quite dynamic. And especially when you compare it with all the traditional lifestyles in the old time or in ancient time, you know, people were less dynamic and they were more like stable in one place. So basically, for example, if you are a carpenter and mm. uh, the most chance that you would experience that you would just uh, get married and you would just have kids and maybe your kid would also inherit the, the, the family business and also and also be the same uh, position that as you do. And so you see, that's a very single path for people in um, the past decades. However, I think in modern society, young people already have different opportunities we, with urbanization and with like the developing transportation and also with a thriving economy in different sectors, in different industries. I think young people already have the opportunity to move to different places and also to experience different industries and the positions. It's not really a very stable position or situation. So of course, I think under that circumstances, you wouldn't think you would want to have a baby because uh, there are just so much uncertainties for you. And meantime, also opportunities. So it's not really a linear path for young people nowadays. They only consider like having baby and even to get married is one of their options uh, for their private life. So I think that's a very like a, a trend that is happening in China and also in other parts of the world. You know, I don't have a baby yet. Mm-hmm. And when I'm thinking about the issue of taking care of baby, or for many families, when they are thinking about how to take care of a baby or babies in a plural form, this could be a full time job. And if we don't have adequate nursery care services, this will be a headache for so many uh, newlyweds and uh, small families. So for the couples, if they are lucky enough, maybe the grandparents will be willing to help. Or if their financial situation is quite comfortable, maybe they're able to hire a nanny to help them take care of the kids or a kid. In this regard, when it's reaching a point, it's just the two people who are fully responsible of taking care of a kid or multiple kids, then very likely one person has to make a compromise, which means that person has to sacrifice his or her career path. Usually, the burden will be on the woman. Mm. And I think for many women, it's not about whether they want to have kids or not. They're afraid of some issues coming with this reality that is like, how about my career goal? Many women in China are well-educated, high achievers, or even overachievers. So when you have to reach a point that you need to sacrifice your career for a second child or third child, I think this is something a person who's very, very ambitious and career-driven will think twice. Yeah, when we are talking about what are the effective measures, I think earlier we talked about issues faced by people who are willing to have child and who are willing to have kids and they're capable of. I think Talking about some uh, effective measures, one thing I really appreciate is about the China's National Healthcare Security Administration. They announced inclusion of labor pain killers and assisted fertility technology into the coverage of medical insurance. Uh, if we are using Beijing as example, a total of 16 medical services using assisted reproductive technologies, or ART for short, will be covered by the city's state insurance effective from March 26. In my opinion, this could be very helpful because there's another recent report quoted by Sixtone saying that in China, 
over 10% of married couples they have infertility problems. Among them, 20% require fertility treatment to have a child of their own. In the last decade, the percentage of people born with the help of ART across China has increased nearly fourfold. So I think this could be very helpful because many couples they have been scared away by the costs of ART procedures. If more procedures included in this category can be covered in the national insurance system, then for more couples who are willing to, but due to some physical conditions they cannot have a baby without the help of the technology, now they are having a chance. So, in your opinion, what are some effective measures to ease people's worries of having babies? And you think this could be very effective? I don't think that I can give any advice to ease people's worries about it. I think that、um, it's an incredibly difficult job, and it's an incredibly big decision to make. And I totally understand why people would be waiting until later later on in life to have. Again, my opinion is financial stability, and so the question really comes down to: it's not the individual, really. I think it's it's about who is going to provide this financial stability. Should there be better legislation in place that、uh, you know forces companies, all all companies, to give more maternity leave, for example, and also paternity leave? Um, I think that this is sort of a solid black and white thing that can be done, and I know it's not that simple. I know that it can cost taxpayers money,、um, but I think things like this are the most important things. I, I also think that tax breaks, again, quite controversial because some people may not consider this to be fair. But is is it right that maybe、um, the taxation of married couples who do not have children should should be higher? This this happens in a lot of countries. Should there be more tax breaks or subsidies for families who have children or families who have more children? A lot of people disagree with all of this and think that it's unfair,、um, that it's not fair to、uh, affect anybody's income in any way just because of the amount of children they have, or that maybe having children isn't a privilege in this regard. So it's very complex. But I I think that it would be patronizing of me to to give any sort of Really personal level advice or encouragement to anybody because I just don't know,、um, and I'm no, at no point at that、uh, at that space in my life yet. I think there are already a lot of discussion about how to encourage young people to have kids already out there, and、uh, you know me personally as a person at her thirties,、mm-hmm. and you know when I. Think about you know the thing of having a baby and also raising a baby. You know, I actually got afraid because I would just worry about a lot of things, and、uh, also particularly I'm afraid of the process of having a baby.、Yeah. You know,、uh, giving birth to the baby. I mean, and when I talk, you know, about this issue with my friends, and I find such fear and such anxiety is widely shared among a lot of young girls. So that's why I think. Um, I personally think there should be more open discussion about the real situation of giving birth to baby and also raising a baby because we really want to avoid generalize the issue of giving birth to baby and having baby. I mean, although it can be really miserable, there are a lot of challenges and difficulties. However, for maybe for some mothers out there, they think like having a baby or to give birth to a baby is the best thing. Happen in their life, so it's quite complicated, and and I think it really depends on personal perspective and personal situation, and also how much resources the parent has. But however, I think、uh, it's always important to encourage such candid and true, authentic discussion about the real situation because we want to encourage young people to make informed and also. Responsible decision.、Uh, if they decide to have a baby, or if they decide now to have a baby, they really need to know the whole picture and then to make decision. In the meantime, I think on the national level, there of course there should be more measures to solve those social issues like increasing living cost and also the demanding working culture. These are all the things that need to be solved. In the meantime, I think we should encourage a more diversified and.、Uh, Uh, equal perspective on the issue. That's my suggestion. Well said. At the end of the day, whether to have a baby or not is your personal choice. 
To sum up, financial burdens, challenges in childcare, and women's concerns over career development or the painful procedure are some of the factors contributing to low birth rates. Hope more customized measures will be in place to provide tangible support for those who still want to have babies. It's roundtable with myself, Huang Shan, Josh Cotterell, and Li Yi. Stick around, everybody. We'll be back after the break. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with me, Huang Shan, joined by Li Yi and Josh Cotterell. Coming up, it's amazing how much time we spend at work. In recent years, we've seen a shift in people's attitude towards work. Where work was once thought to define who we are and our place in the world, work now needs to work for our benefit. Thriving at work is something employees are attaching great importance to nowadays. What does it mean to thrive at work? And in reality, is a thriving work culture commonplace? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, I don't know what you are waiting for, but we would really appreciate it if you did. Just look up Roundtable China on your favorite podcast platform and click subscribe. Now on Roundtable, all employees love to feel enthusiastic about their work. On the other hand, employers also want their employees to thrive at work, as a thriving employee means a growing company. This has made many organizations move from measuring employee engagement to measuring employee thriving. However, in reality, we have seen too many enterprises that fail at providing thriving conditions for employees. For organization leaders, how to promote a thriving workplace culture? The E tells us more about why employee thriving is the new employee engagement now. Mm, I think you know when we talk about assessment or measure of employees and also the workplace culture, a very common approach would be employee engagement, and that's also to today a lot of companies are really adopting this measure, and it's basically used for evaluating whether an employee is. Actively engaged with his or her work, or he or she is simply putting in their time. However, I think, especially in modern workplace, there has been a growing recognition of the need to move beyond engagement because companies leaders are finding that engaged workers who are not thriving in their personal lives are much more vulnerable, and also that could also lead problems to organizations. For example, according to a 2022 Study by、uh, Gallup, which is an analytics and advisory company. People who are engaged yet are not thriving in their personal life or in workplace are much more likely to experience burnout or stress, anxiety, or like daily sadness or anger in workplace and also in life. And that could just、uh, lead to harm to productivity in company. And that is the thing that a lot of leaders are caring about. So that's why there's the notion of、uh, employee thriving. It's basically a state that、uh, employee. Feel they can adapt, evolve, and even transform themselves. So all in all, I think it's, it's really about productivity. And meantime, it's more than that. It's also about vitality. It's also about whether employee could just grow and learn on a daily basis in workplace. And also, it's about whether they can achieve a mental health balance、uh, in work and also in life. So that's why you know company leaders are really promoting the concept. Uh, that is employee thriving. Josh, what's your interpretation of employee thriving? In other words, what is like to work in a company that makes employees thrive? Well, on a personal note, I'm not sure if I've ever truly experienced it myself yet. <laughs> but、um, I'm slightly different because I I work remotely and I do a lot of freelance work, as you guys know. So it's a bit different for me. But within a A company or a corporate setting of sorts,、um, there is so much evidence to suggest that happiness at work, and I have some explanations as to what happiness at work actually can constitute. But、uh, there's a lot of studies that show that it's beneficial for everybody, including the business. There's actually a really great study that I found by the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom that found that happy employees are 12% more productive. That's a lot, actually, because if you consider the amount of employees your company might have, you know, you could be talking 
a, a really huge increase in your company's ability to outperform all of the competition, right? But what is happiness and, and how do you get there? I guess that's a, a completely different question. I do have some ideas of my own, but I guess we're going to discuss those uh, soon, right? Yeah. So sometimes I know what I don't like instead of what I like. So I don't really know what company that can offer employees the thriving opportunities looks like, but maybe I know the opposite side. For example, there's no support for employee growth, which means maybe you have been working this company for years and then there's no promotion opportunity and there's no ladder for you to climb up in order to achieve that mobility in the system. So you would like to make a progress day by day. And in reality, what you are doing is that uh, the same old thing. You are living your life emotions and doing these routines and gradually you will lose your passion and creativity for what you are doing. And sometimes a company cannot offer you resources. You have to acquire or obtain such resources on your own. For example, if you have been arranged a task, then of course you would do your job. You would try your best to achieve to accomplish that task. However, everyone has his or her own expertise and maybe something is just not your forte that you would like to receive the support from your team leader or just your company. However, they tell you, you have to be a comprehensive talent. You have to figure out the ways by yourself. This is a way to grow. If this is the growing path, the boss is directing for me, then I don't know whether I would like to buy this idea. And so many employees are complaining. They are multitasking every day. Overworking is nothing new. Uh, most companies prioritize customer service first and operations than everyone else, which means the people who are doing actual job are at the grassroots and they have no bright opportunities to compensate their overworking reality. So gradually, I think you're employees will be unhappy for sure and they will lose the passion for fighting for this company and trying to bring in more productive content into this company. So as a result, I don't think this company will go very far. And if your solution is to hire new people and trying to fool them, especially during the stage that uh, they are still newbies in a workplace, I don't think this is a very sustainable development pattern. Yeah, so here are my examples of a company that cannot provide you that chance for thriving. So I don't know, in your opinion, in reality, is a thriving working culture commonplace or is so hard to get? What do you do when you work in an unsatisfactory workplace? I think you mentioned a really good point here. That is, in reality, of course, we all know what is like a dream company or a dream workplace would be like. There might be a clear career rope, mad rope for you, and um, there might be a lot of support for your personal growth to achieve career progression. And maybe there are well-established training programs and uh, also like good salaries and benefits. These are all the factors that would be provided by an ideal uh, workplace or an ideal organization. However, in reality, we've seen too many examples that companies are like failing to provide such conditions for employees. And especially if you look at a global basis, um, it seems that somehow the majority of employees are not satisfied with their working conditions, with their companies. And specifically, uh, if you look at a report published by uh, Gallup, uh, the company that we mentioned earlier, um, actually, 60% of people reported being emotionally detached at work, and only 33% reported feeling engaged at the workplace. And uh, the report also shows that, you know, what are the things that employees care most? That is not only about working hours, it's also about how they experience at work, whether they've uh, got enough support to pursue a higher uh, or a better career path or a self-progression, and also uh, how they are appreciated, how they are managed, how they are coached, and how they are treated. These are all the things that employees would just uh, love to have in their workplace. However, sadly, in reality, it seems that it's just a rare, rare case. So considering that, I would say some measures to promote 
uh, the workplace culture, the leaders could provide better support to afford employees to really care about the personal development or the personal progression of employees. I mean, try to sit down with all the employees and try to ask what they really want, what they want to achieve in five years or in 10 years and try to see what you can offer uh, employees to help them achieve that goal. That could be a possible solution or a possible approach. And also, of course, salaries and benefits. Also, that's the most fundamental thing that everybody is working for. So I think to offer some good salaries and also to offer some incentives could also help to solve the issue. Uh, but I think more importantly, I think organizations and companies should really carefully select leaders at all levels because sometimes you know we have seen like different news or like different reports showing that employees are working unhappily because of their managers because of their bosses so because that's the most like frequent interpersonal uh, communication in the workplace so personnel management is is, is also important uh, to promote an overall uh, workplace culture. Yeah, I think this issue is quite difficult, but I think it starts from the top. We talk about all the specifics about how to make things better and raising salaries and all this kind of thing. But ultimately, all of these things are quite hard to implement. And your boss might not be the boss. And mm. quite likely, they're going to have pressure from above and their boss is going to have another boss who gives them quotas to meet and goals to meet. And so... Most companies are just driven towards profit. And also a lot of companies, sadly, are driven towards quite short-term profit rather than long-term profit in order to get ahead in the market. And that's why so many, most, most businesses end up failing, right, in the end. And that's why most people end up in unhappy workspaces because you're working in a business that probably quite likely is not going to stand the test of time. It will fail at some point in the future. That's the reality. And, you know, you just got to hope that you're on the, the incline of that business's life rather than the decline side of it. But we never know, really. I think it starts from the, the top down. I mean, we saw this example recently in my own country with this massive experiment of the four-day work week and how successful that was. Just giving people an extra day off work and they are allowed to have that free time. And I think things like that inspire a lot of happiness in the workplace. It gives workers trust. It makes them feel trusted. And I think that's really important. I think so many people often feel as though like they're still in school or something because they can't be trusted to finish their work on time. So they're forced to spend a lot of time at work. All of these things, they garner a lot of negative energy for workers. And I think ultimately as well, people want to have growth in the workplace. I think most people are quite similar, actually. There are a few people who are driven for whatever reason and they will put everything in their personal life out of the window just for their work. But I think most people, they just want to come to work and feel valued. And I also think that people want to work towards something. They want to see a future for themselves. But this is just so often not the case. And I think something as simple as giving people more free time or respecting their hours a bit more, for example, when you clock off work, actually being allowed to clock off and not being contacted by your boss, not wasting time in meetings, being listened to, having solid goals and being open about salary, for example, knowing exactly how much everybody earns and that being open. I think that should be the case. I, I really do. I know that's scary for a lot of people, but knowing how year on year, how much your salary could increase, things like this that all tell you about your future in a solid, concrete way. To be honest, I think what employees are asking for is very reasonable. And this is very simple and very little. What we want we just want a chance to thrive. We are not asking for a better payment. We are not asking for a longer annual pay leave. So we're just asking for the boss can recognize our achievement and give us more fertile ground to develop. We just want to be heard, be appreciated. That's all. Is it that hard to get? I think creating the right environment for people to thrive it does require both empathy and trust. So from the top down, this responsibility thing, for every manager or every layer of bosses, I think they have to trust people who are actually doing the work. So if you don't want to give them enough space to shine because you're worried that they may um, do something wrong and you have to take the blame for that, 
it will never make things happen. And I think for each leader, each manager, I mean, such people they have to take their responsibilities because when you put them into the management position, then you are in charge of something. So if you can pay attention to the mental health, the emotional well-being of your employees. This will go a long way, which means it can gradually boost the retention rate.、Uh, we know that during the past few years,、uh, great recognition has been a key word, and we have talked about it several times. And people now they have prioritized what they want in life and what they want to achieve in workplace. Some people they really don't care about the payment, but the majority of people still care. But they would like to accept pay less, but with a more Flexible work schedule. Oh, for many people, like Josh, you mentioned the four-day work week. That sounds a brilliant idea. And also the hybrid work mode, which means like you can work maybe four days in the office, one day at home. So many people are opting for such more flexible arrangement of work. Well, these are the perspectives from the employees. So if we put ourselves into the shoes of employers, I know this could be a very hard question. Is it that easy to build a thriving workplace? And what does it take to build a positive workplace? Because we are all good at complaining about things, but if you are in charge of that, how you can make the workplace a better place? I think that's a very good question. And I think you know, just the days earlier, we've discussed the issue about like putting yourself in the shoes of your boss. Yeah. So this is exactly the moment that we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the boss. Although we've discussed a lot about you know what is the ideal company or workplace, I think it's really hard for like an average company to achieve that kind of level of management because、uh, usually when you see those like ideal workplace, it's usually the big companies or it's usually the top companies in the industries, either in China or either in other parts of the world. So that means those companies really has a very good financial situation. To support those like either training programs or like really good salaries boosts, that depends on the financial situation of the company, and that also has something to do with the scale of the company, right? If we talk about a startup company, maybe there are just a few employees in the company. They you can't expect expect a very clear career path or a very clear and well organized、uh, hierarchy in terms of management. So there are a lot of things to be considered, I guess,、uh, for employers to really build a well established management workplace. Yeah, ultimately for me, I think that I'll try not to repeat myself, but I think that. Giving people reassurance of their future is really important, and I think there's quite tangible ways that you can do that. You know, think about it right now. Just sit, everybody listening to this right now. I mean, has your boss or has your company told you where you could be in the next two, three, four, five years? What position could you hold if you do well in your job? What would you, what will your salary be like? What kind of benefits and、um, promotional Um, benefits are you going to have if you work hard and stay in your job? I think the sad reality is that a lot of people don't know that actually, and I think they may blame their immediate boss, but maybe their boss doesn't know either. And the even more sad thing about it is that possibly the company is designed so that it's not okay for that to happen or that that's not possible. And that's really quite depressing. And I think <laughs> that that needs to be fixed, and it should be fixed if you want to keep your employees happy.、Uh, I must say that. Almost every company that I've worked for, nobody's ever told me that. Nobody's ever told me, "Oh, you could be in this position." Could be. It, they, of course, they cannot promise, but they could tell you, "You could be doing this if you if you do well in your job." And、uh, yeah, I think something. This kind of conversations and these kind of at least ideas about the future need to be more commonplace and more common、mm. conversation topics. We employees dedicate long hours to our company. We aim to perform well and to make money for sure. However, I do think the value of a happy employee has been underestimated for a very long time. So, make work meaningful, make employees thrive. As happy employees are productive ones. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, we share with you what's made us happy this week in our special segment, Roundtable's Happy Place. Stay with us. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happiness from Round Table. 
It's the hour of roundtable with myself, Hongshan, Josh Cotterill, and Li Yi. Now, we invite you to our happy place. So, who wants to start first? Maybe I can start first. Okay. The happy thing that I really want to share this week is a visit that I paid to the Temple of Heaven in Beijing.、Hmm. You know, that's a very quite interesting place, and I suggest anyone who hasn't visited the place to go there and explore the fabulous and also the delicate architecture and the layout. And also, you can learn history there because I learned that the place was built in. Uh, the year 1420, and、uh, that is the location where Ming and Qing dynasty emperors worshipped heaven for good harvests. And you know, particularly there, I saw a great number of visitors in the site, and also in the city Beijing. I think、mm. um, they come from all over the country to pay like a visit and to have a short, long-distance trips. I just feel like everything is so vibrant, and especially when you see like the temperature gets higher and there's warmer sun, like longer days, and you can feel the breeze in the air. I think the spring is coming, and that's what makes me happy. And、uh, particularly, I think there are so many reasons that people love spring, and maybe because of the mild、uh, weather and the sunshine, and, and also the blooming flowers. But I think the most important thing about spring is really is the time for a new beginning, and also that's also a season that symbolizes starting fresh and starting over. And especially after months of cold temperatures, that often result in many of us feeling the winter blues. I think spring ultimately reawakens us, and also our surrounding environment, you know, try to bring everything back to life. So I think that's. On a sim- symbolic and emotional level, I think spring is really a chance to help us experience a renewal of the soul, of the mind, and also your body and and your life. So that's why I just want to recommend everybody to go outside and、uh, you know not only to get healthier but also、uh, try to be more positive and you can also feel better and also feel more open-minded when you go outside and to have a close contact with the nature and you can just、uh, go for a hike and maybe go for the zoo or even an amusement park or simply just ride your bike. I think that's all the things you could do in spring, and、uh, just embrace the nature, and also do everything to make yourself feel good. That's my happy place. Oh, that makes me happy too. Spring is the season that most people like. I would say it represents hope, and the temperature is amazing. You know, the weekend is coming. It's a great chance for you to explore your city or travel around the country, thanks to、uh, the high-speed rails and a really. Convenient flights. So, Josh, what's your happy place? Well, recently I watched a really amazing film called Stutz, and it's about the actor Jonah Hill. It's a documentary, a film that he's making about his therapist, and it's a really incredible movie. And it's basically a years-long conversation between his therapist, who has Parkinson's disease, and Jonah Hill, who's been his. Subject or been his patient, sorry, for years, I think, and the the clips go over all of these years, and the documentary starts out as an interview as Jonah Hill actually interviewing his therapist and asking him about his life, but not to spoil anything, but there's a big change in the movie, and they realise that they have to make it more real, and that Jonah Hill, the actor, also has to make it more real, and. Uh, I could go on and talk forever about this movie, but there's some incredible tips and tools that I learned from this film, and it almost feels like you're in a therapy session yourself. And I think one of the things that hit me the most was、uh, the ideas about gratefulness and gratitude. And I think I'd always known this, or not always, but this is—I think a lot of people have heard this about how practicing gratitude can be very beneficial for you, right? But actually. It's not just about being grateful for the sake of being grateful. There's actually a lot more to this, and it's all all about the process of working out what you're grateful for. And as you work through that process, you you realise that actually there's a lot of happiness to be found in that process. And I don't want to speak too much about it because I really encourage everybody to go and find this movie and watch it because. It is really incredible, and I think there's a lot of knowledge to be gotten from it. But I just wanted to say that I I learnt the benefits 
and the happiness from practicing gratitude from this. So that's that's my happy place. Please go and watch this film, Stutz. That's very profound. That could be the human nature. We have taken so many things for granted. Maybe start from today. Try to cherish small things in your life and be grateful with regard to people's caring as well as the good things in your life. Well, if you're interested in this film, why not put it into your to-do list for the coming weekend? And now is my happy place. I would say my happy place is the joy of desserts, because over the weekend I had quite the sampling of pastries and desserts. I began my sweet endeavor at a rooftop cafe. Me and my husband had a sweet caramel gelato with a strawberry cake. I adore both pastries, but what I liked most was the fact that. Neither was overpoweringly sweet. I can't stand pastries that just taste of sugar because they mask all the other layers. And we later continued our confectionery escapade that evening with a baked Alaska. If you're familiar with this dessert, you may know that uh,、um, this initiated is an ice cream sitting atop a sponge cake covered in a meringue, which the waiter charred with a blowtorch. The dimly lit restaurant was the best way to enjoy the flambe spectacle. And the next day, as we were waiting for a table, we also had macaroons. The flavors were in orange blossom, raspberry, and chocolate. The key to a good macaron is a shell that is hard on the outside and gooey on the inside, and not too sweet. I really like the filling because it was a chocolate ganache, and the other one is a fruit coaty because the American buttercream fillings are really rich. I don't like that taste. Well, later for my brunch, we had pie. One was raspberry cream pie, and the other was a pistachio yogurt pie. On the last day, we had gelato with four different flavors: toasted marshmallow, brown butter, cucumber, yuzu shizo. I know many may think that I'm weird for picking cucumber flavor. It was only the second most non-dessert sounding flavor after fennel. Well, you know what I like about desserts is that. They come in so many colors and flavors. The ingredients seem endless, especially when they start making gelato out of vegetables. But also, I like the vibe. It is very important to enjoy desserts. It's one thing to eat a tub of ice cream on a couch watching soap operas. It's quite another to savor gelato on an outdoor veranda. To the chirping of birds, surrounded by other young couples. So if you love desserts like me, but feel guilty because you are on a diet, give yourself a cheat day and binge on your sweet cravings in a way that honors the pastry chefs that made them. You know, it suddenly occurred to me that what we are offering today constitutes a perfect weekend plan.、Yes. You know, you can try to go for the hike. Outside and then、yeah. bring some delicious desserts and then to enjoy a beautiful movie or documentary at home. Yeah, and that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much for your company. You can find us on Apple Podcast at Roundtable China. Thank you, Josh and Li Yi, for joining the show. See you next time.